Welcome to the show. This week, the countdown to legal cannabis is on. In just 10 days, smoking up will be legal all across the country. But are we ready? Then Ottawa and the provinces are facing off in a carbon tax confrontation and frustration over pipeline politics. Plus, seven more Russians are indicted for a cyber attack against Canada and its Western allies. What is Ottawa doing to protect you? I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and this is the West Block. In just 10 days, cannabis will be legal across the country, but there are still a lot of questions and potential chaos for how this could all unfold, with each province setting its own rules for age limits and sales. But the federal government sets the standard for impaired driving laws and enforcement, as well as product concentration and possession allowance, raising concerns among the provinces and on police forces, not to mention for Canadians trying to navigate the new rules. Joining me now to discuss these issues is Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould. Uh, Minister, 10 days from now, marijuana will be legal. One of the biggest questions on people's minds is about driving. How much can they consume and drive? What are the legal rules around that? Well, in terms of, of uh, driving, uh, we are taking a precautionary approach. Uh, no amount of alcohol or um, drug consumption, in my view, is a safe uh, amount to, to drive with. So um, if you have consumed alcohol or drugs, um, it is strongly recommended that you not get behind the wheel of your car. But what's the law on it? Because you, you can consume alcohol and get behind the wheel as long as you're below a certain percentage point. How is that going to work with marijuana? Is it zero tolerance or is there an amount that people can have consumed? Well, I, I mean, again, I'm, I'm going to say that there's no amount that's safe to, to um, consume in terms of drugs uh, and getting behind the wheels of your car. Um, we have uh, in the legislation um, provided uh, law enforcement officers with many tools to be able to detect whether or not somebody is impaired by alcohol or drugs. And uh, for safety's sake, for the sake of the safety on the roads, we recommend that people not get behind the wheels of their car if they've consumed any uh, alcohol or drugs. I'll try this another way. At what point are you going to be charged with impaired driving? Well, it, it depends on a case-by-case -case basis. So um, police officers uh, have uh, uh, the opportunity um, to uh, um, go through a series of different tests uh, to um, conduct standard field sobriety tests. Um, we are training drug recognition experts to be able to determine uh, whether or not they are of the view or see probable grounds that somebody has been impaired by uh, drugs. Um, and we also are to build the probable grounds to take uh, a blood sample. Uh, to determine whether or not the individual has been uh, um, impaired by drugs. Are you concerned about the science with that? Because I know it's, it's pretty clear with alcohol, you know at a certain percentage of alcohol in the bloodstream, somebody is impaired. There's less silence with marijuana because it hasn't been legal, so you couldn't really get people high to test it. Um, and there's some concern there could be legal challenges because somebody could have THC showing in their system and not be high, or could have a low level showing but expresses as someone who's very impaired. Well, that's why we have um, provided law enforcement officers with a, a myriad of tools. Driving well impaired has been on the books um, as an offense for over 100 years. Uh, in the legislation, we provide law enforcement officers with a, um, a, a test that uh, enables them to determine by taking a sample of saliva to determine whether or not somebody has um, drugs in their body, THC. Um, it registers a pass or a fail. That's one tool that we provide 
certified law enforcement officers. But in addition to that, uh, law enforcement officers are trained in terms of um, sobriety testing on the roadside, as well as drug recognition um, uh, expertise. And all of that are indications that lead to probable grounds that there is a likelihood of uh, drugs in somebody's system, which would lead to a, a blood sample. Um, there is always uh, going to be, um, uh, I suspect, legal challenges around uh, impaired driving. Um, but well, we are and that's one of the things I was hoping to talk to you about, because the Drygar, which is the device you've chosen, reportedly doesn't work very well in cold conditions, and it's pretty cold in much of Canada from maybe October until May. How are you going to deal with that? Are you just going to sort of sit back and wait for this to be challenged in court? Because I'd imagine that's going to happen pretty quickly. Well, I, uh, I was pleased to certify the dragger as the um, a to additional tool that law enforcement will have. Um, that uh, tool, the dragger, has been and was recommended by um, uh, a series of experts that uh, provide um, recommendations to me. The Drug and Driving Committee of the Canadian Society of Forensic Scientists. Uh, experts. And you're not concerned about that cold factor? Uh, well, the, uh, the dragger was tested on the roads. Um, quite extensively in differential temperatures. Um, I'm confident that Drager provides a tool for law enforcement officers, um, an additional tool for them to take in terms of being able to determine whether or not somebody has been impaired by, uh, uh, by uh, drugs. The next topic I'd like to tackle with you is mm -hmm. plants being grown at home. Uh, you're allowing mm -hmm. the provinces to determine this, and some provinces like Quebec are saying they're not going to allow it. Why set the rules on so many things, like the content in the product and who can distribute it, mm -hmm. but not set the rules on something like plants federally? Well, there's a number of, um, as you know, in the legislation, that a number of um, provisions that are permissive to provinces and territories around age and also around the number of plants that can be grown at home. And provinces have taken it upon themselves to determine uh, what the appropriate number of plants uh, they want to grow. In the legislation, we speak about four. Um, we considered um, home grow um, quite extensively. We benefited from recommendations from our task force uh, that uh, um, we took and uh, recommendations from across the board in terms of our legislation. So this is coming from us um, based on extensive uh, uh, review by the task force, extensive um, consultations that we did across the country, and we want to ensure that we provide the opportunity um, for home grow and that it is going to be further regulated you, by provinces. Do you think it's a little bit Harper-esque, though, that this is what they used to do. The Conservatives would pass legislation mm -hmm. and say, we're going to let someone challenge it in court. That's kind of what your government is doing on a lot of this file, too. We'll pass the legislation, then we'll see what the courts decide. No, we we believe, and we have been working very cooperatively with the provinces and territories, recognizing that provinces and territories uh, are different. And we have, through the legislation, as I said, provided some permissive uh, um, provisions that enable provinces, reflective of their own individual um, citizens, uh, to make some changes and adapt to the circumstances in the provinces. And um, the amount of plants or the number of plants that um, individuals can grow is can be uh, changed and determined by provinces. But we are going to continue to work with the provinces uh, to ensure that this is um, a seamless, um, in 10 days from now, um, legalization and a strict regulatory regime. What are you advising Canadians to say at the border when they cross if they're asked whether or not they've consumed marijuana? 
Well, as I've always said, and I know that my colleague, the Minister of Public Safety, uh, has always said that when you are approaching a border and you're going into the United States or other places, that uh, to tell the truth and to answer questions uh, truthfully. And finally, I just want to ask you, when it comes to where people can smoke cannabis, uh, there's been some questions about why smoking instead of edibles, for starters, because there's more overdoses with edibles and your government thinks that smoking is unhealthy, and also that you can do this out in public, which people are complaining about. Um, why did you choose to deal with only the smoking first? Well, there's, there's more uh, extensive work that uh, the Minister of Health and, and the Minister of Border Security are doing around uh, ensuring uh, um, the proper regulation around edibles. But in terms of where one can smoke in public, again, we're working very cooperatively with the provinces and territories. Um, they're working with uh, local municipalities to make determinations around that based on uh, what they're hearing and what their priorities are and what uh, laws and regulations they have in place. Will there be any kind of a public health campaign to advise people of what amounts of marijuana could result in intoxication? Because with alcohol, most people have a sense of what a beer or a glass of wine will do, but there's not that experience necessarily with marijuana. Well, we are um, launching a an, or continuing a public education campaign. Um, many people will have received or will receive soon uh, information in their mailboxes right across the country about uh, legalization and the strict regulation with warnings. Um, but we're going to continue to make sure that we have a broad public education and information campaign. But I will say again, as we started the interview, um, uh, I believe fundamentally that there is no amount of alcohol or drugs that one can consume and get behind the wheel of a car. We need to okay. make sure that we have uh, safe roads out there. We have to stop it there, Minister, because we're out of time. But thank okay. you so much. Thank you very much. The carbon tax is one of the Liberal government's big promises, but this week it ran into more trouble with the provinces. Manitoba is the latest province to pull out, saying the federal government is not respecting the province's positions. And in Alberta, a big stop the carbon tax rally between Ontario Premier Doug Ford and Alberta Conservative leader Jason Kenney. He, of course, will be joining me in just a few moments. But first of all, late last week, the Prime Minister weighed in on his government's plans for a federal carbon tax. Take a listen. We have decided as a government, and Canadians asked us to do this in 2015, that we're going to put a price on pollution. Pollution should not be free anywhere across this country. And we are going to be moving forward. Joining me now from Edmonton is United Conservative Party leader Jason Kenney. Uh, Mr. Kenney, why are you holding this rally? Why are you so opposed to the idea of a carbon tax? The NDP government in Alberta introduced a carbon tax uh, uh, three years ago that two-thirds of Albertans consistently oppose because they understand that it's all economic pain and no environmental gain, that punishing people for heating their homes in a cold winter or filling up their gas tanks to drive to work is not an environmental policy. It's just an effort by big government politicians to get more control over ordinary people's lives. Uh, and that's why we're delighted to see this growing national coalition against the NDP Liberal carbon tax uh, from Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan. And we believe New Brunswick after this election is resolved, and we believe here in Alberta next spring. Mr. Kenny, where do you think this is going to go, though? Because at the end of the day, there's legal opinions saying the federal government has the right to impose this kind of a tax across the country, just like your government did with the GST. And there, it wasn't my government, to be clear. Uh, we cut the GST by from 7 to 5 percent. 
the, uh, we also have legal opinions indicating that this would be an unconstitutional intrusion into provincial jurisdiction. Uh, so my party, United Conservatives, are running on a platform explicitly to repeal the job-killing NDP carbon tax. Uh, and if the federal Liberals then try to impose their tax arrogantly on us without the consent of Albertans, uh, we'll see them in court. We'll be joining the legal challenges of the governments of Ontario and Saskatchewan, I believe Manitoba as well. Uh, listen, uh, provinces have a right to levy taxes for provincial purposes. The federal government saying this is effectively a provincial tax. They have no business doing this. But more importantly, uh, the cost of living is already too high. Gas prices are up. People in Alberta are paying effectively 120 percent carbon tax on natural gas just to heat their homes. And Mr. Trudeau's agenda is ultimately to increase this massively. His own de the environment department admits they want to go to at least $200 a ton from the current federal $20 a ton. A uh, a tenfold increase uh, because they know that the proponents of carbon taxes will admit that you cannot achieve Paris climate targets through reducing emissions on a carbon tax until it's in the range of two to three hundred dollars a ton. But Mr. Kenny, I just want to stop you for a second because there there is actually a report that came out very recently by Canadians for Clean Prosperity. It's run by one of Stephen Harper's former policy directors that says if the carbon tax is done right, most households would see a significant rebate. They'd be getting more in a rebate that they're paying out. And if you believe that, Mercedes, I've got some swamp land in Florida for you. The idea that you could uh, tax pe people and they're going to be better off by then sending checks from the... This is ridiculous. It's been completely rebutted by Canada's leading tax policy expert, uh, uh, Jack uh, Mintz. Uh, it would cost an additional uh, net 400... Uh, it would cost more for every family with an income of over $40,000. So it's just another effort to tr uh, transfer uh, revenue within Canada. How about instead we try to get the over all tax burden down, the cost of living down, instead of politicians constantly trying to take more control over how people live their lives. Mr. Kenny, I'd like to switch gears a little bit, but to another issue that is certainly a hot button out in Alberta. That's the Trans Mountain Pipeline. The government announced another 22 weeks of consultation that's court-ordered uh, with Indigenous communities. Uh, you're saying you would have rather see them challenge this in court, but a lot of legal experts say it would have taken more than 22 weeks to get this to the Supreme Court. Why take that approach? To be clear, I'm saying they should do both things at the same time. Uh, there's no reason. They, they don't have to do these things consecutively. They can do them at the same time. They could go to the Supreme Court on an appeal, and they should do so. Uh, on this, Premier Notley and I agree. Um, we need clarity, uh, not just for this, but for future projects, not just for pipelines, but other major infrastructure projects. The, let's be honest, Mercedes, the courts keep changing the, the goalposts on what is the federal government's duty to consult First Nations. Uh, we need clarity on that for the future. And I believe there's a very good chance the Supreme Court would overturn this. The decision of the federal court against Trans Mountain was made on very narrow technical grounds. They basically said the feds uh, fulfilled their consultation duty on three of four phases. But in one of those phases, they didn't talk enough. They only listened. I mean, is that really uh, the, the grounds on which we're going to jeopardize a, a project that could represent 
tens of billions of dollars of value for the Canadian economy. And by the way, Mercedes, what about the vast majority of First Nations along the pipeline route who support it, who have been partners in Trans Mountain for six decades, it's been there for six decades? Why don't they get a voice share? Why is all of the legal power only in the hands of a small minority of typically foreign-funded uh, First Nations, in this case, that aren't even on the pipeline route? Although there are First Nations on the pipeline route who oppose it too, but we don't have much time left, so I want to ask you, do you think at this point that Trans Mountain is ever going to be built? I don't know, but I, I certainly hope so. We desperately need it. This country's got the third largest oil reserves in the world. We need to get it to global markets. And if we don't, we're abandoning global energy markets to the world's worst regimes like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela, uh, Iran and Qatar, and Putin's Russia. The world needs more Canadian energy, uh, and, and, and we need it to pay for our future uh, debts and health care and public services. Do you also need to do something, Mr. Kenny, though, to address climate change? Uh, but of course, but the pipeline doesn't create emissions. This is a complete misnomer. The, wor the, the world has a growing global demand for oil and gas, uh, according to the International Energy Agency, through at least the year 2045. The question is whether Canada will be part of supplying that demand or whether we will allow it to be supplied by the OPEC dictatorships. I don't think that's and good for the environment. And I guess whether or not Alberta in the future standards. might do something about uh, carbon or climate change. That's all the time we have, unfortunately, so I have to wrap it up. But thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mercedes. With the advancement of technology and the acceleration of illicit or illegal behavior, including by state actors like, uh, uh, like Russia, and we are absolutely determined uh, to take every step we possibly can to keep the government system safe and to keep Canadians overall safe. That was Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale responding to the threat of online attacks. Late last week, seven Russians were indicted for cyber attacks against Canada and its Western allies. And this comes just after Canada launched its new Centre for Cybersecurity to help protect the government and all of us from cyber attacks. Joining me now is the head of that new cyber centre, Scott Jones. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, an issue that's increasingly on people's minds as our lives get more convenient but also more tied to the cyber world. What do you think the single biggest threat is right now to the Canadian government from the cyber world? Well, for us, the, the biggest threat is that it's evolving so quickly. And how, how can we respond to a very rapidly evolving environment where the threats can come at us from all different angles? And so we don't concentrate on one single actor. We have to concentrate on them all. So how can we really multiply our, our defensive efforts to protect the government of Canada, but also how can we extend that out to protect all of Canadians? And that's the role of the Cyber Centre. Does that mean people are trying to get access to what? To our election systems, maybe to manipulate them, to secret government data, the Department of National Defense? What are they targeting? So they're really targeting everything. Um, there are cyber criminals that are going after the private data that the government holds and protects. Um, there are states who are absolutely looking for espionage uh, to steal government information. And sometimes there are just hacktivists who are just looking to have fun, see what they can do, get into the government, show that it's, that, that it's possible. And so we have to protect against all of it. And. Uh, and that's really, the, that's really the biggest challenge here, is that you don't concentrate on one threat. How hard is that? It's always a challenge, um, but it's an interesting one, and it's one that uh, our staff have found ways to keep up with. I'm sure fascinating ways, which we won't get to hear the details of. But I'm curious to know in particular with Russia and China, because we hear a lot about them and their offensive capability and the troll farms. How big of a threat are those two countries in terms of their cyber activities to Canada? Well, we've certainly seen in this last week with Russia um, a wide-scale um, allied effort to really to really deal with um, some, some Russian activity that's crossed over some thresholds for us in terms of, you know, interfering in things like sport. 
um, and the, the World Anti-Doping Agency, etc. And so pushing back and saying, okay, this is this is too much, and doing some things that could hopefully limit uh, what Russia's ability is to use cyber tools. Um, but in general, we need to look at all of the state actors. Cyber tools aren't just within the range of one or two. It's within the range of 100 countries. Uh, it is a very cheap way to come and do some of the things like mass manipulation of information. And so we want to make sure that we're guarding against all of it. Are you confident that our election will be safe from this in 2019, or is it going to be a big target? Well, it will, it will be a target. We uh, issued a report last summer um, called uh, the Cyber Threats to Canada's Democratic Processes, where we outlined what we think are the threats. The election itself is very secure. Elections Canada, we've been working with them since actually before the previous election to make sure that we're ready, uh, that they're ready to, to run a very secure election. But social media, the rise of the rise of um, kind of troll farms, the ability to manipulate to really target uh, the divisions in this in the country. That's something that we have to talk about, and so we've been highlighting that the use of social media, the media itself, and political parties um, themselves, making sure that they're all protected as well. How at risk is the average Canadian? Because you know, I can, for example, control the thermostat in my home from my phone. A lot of people have the Alexa device that they talk to, and it searches for things or plays music. But all of those things, I'd imagine, are a bit of a backdoor. Well, I think the average Canadian, the thing that I would be most worried about is cybercrime. Uh, cyber criminals are really interested in any sort of private information that they can get, whether it's to steal your identity, steal your credit card information, c commit financial fraud, or dupe you into doing something. Um, and so every one of those devices gives them a window in. And so that's something that I think as, we, as much as we value features, we should start talking about security and do I really want to give my private information? Do I really want to bring something that's listening to me every second of the day into the house? So that's a personal decision. Maybe the Russians are listening to you when you're asking Alexa to Google search. You, you might. They could, it's possible if it's got some vulnerabilities, but certainly it's something that you need to think through and make a choice as a consumer. What are some of the programs and information you're going to offer to Canadians to help them protect themselves and the Canadian government? Well, for Canadians, uh, as part of the Cyber Centre, uh, we're, we're taking over the Get Cyber Safe campaign. It's Cyber Security Awareness Month. So we want to give some, some tips that every Canadian can use, uh, both when they're using their technology, but when they're buying it as well. So those are some of the themes that we'll be covering. For critical infrastructure, uh, we're looking to build partnerships. So how can we start to work together to build in security from the start? and layer on an approach to security that can actually start to reduce some of those cyber risks. And then for the government itself, we are the defender. So we run the defenses for the government of Canada, and we want to share those experiences and lessons learned as well, and hopefully raise the, raise the overall bar of cybersecurity in Canada. I think when a lot of people think about cybersecurity, it's certainly something they become more aware of, but it seems like there's more opportunity. How at risk are we in ways that we might not think about on a daily basis that there's access or vulnerability if a system goes down? Well, I think some of the, some of the challenges is we all assume it won't happen to us. This is something that happens to somebody else, especially as individuals. Um, so just doing some simple things as backing up your information, um, making sure that you save all, all of those things, that means you're no longer vulnerable to ransomware. You can restore. Um, and that's something that cyber criminals are going to try to use to get money from you. Um, making sure when you're giving your information, why do they need that? Is this, would this really be my bank who's asking for this type of thing? Being a questioning consumer, um, don't just assume. Uh, and if, if it doesn't feel right, take another vector. Call the, call the bank, for example. Just some simple things that we can all do that, you know, ask some questions. There's a lot of good people out there with some really interesting tools. Cyber can be a great uh, economic uh, multiplier. But there's some bad people out there that want to do it too, so ask some questions and just take some simple steps. I think will help.
Okay, don't click on the link. Exactly. That's rule number one. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for checking out the West Block Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and listen on your Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you find your podcast. And join the conversation at the West Block Facebook and check out our Instagram page. And please tune in again.